everyone. I'm Jessica Manas, and welcome to Algo First. I am the host of the Algo First podcast and the founder and CEO of Algo First. We are a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting you on your journey of mental health, hope, healing, and freedom. This is a really fun episode for me. Raleigh Sadler joins us today to talk about what happens when passion meets your purpose. He is truly a champion in the anti-trafficking community and really challenged me and I think all of us to rethink how we think about human rights. He is a dear, dear friend, and I can't wait for you to hear this episode. Let's get started. Hi, I'm Jessica Minhas, and welcome to another episode of Algo First. I am joined by one of my actually, yes, one of my dearest, dearest friends, Raleigh Sadler. He is the founder um, and director of Let My People Go and also the author of the book on vulnerability, vulnerability rethinking human trafficking. Yeah, absolutely. Raleigh and I have known each other almost too long. I would say. Yeah, yeah. We're reaching an expiration date, I think. No. What? That's so sad. That is sad. But we're not. That was a joke. It was a dark joke, but no, it was I a joke. I didn't like it. I didn't like it either. I you know how sometimes you say things and immediately regret what you say? I feel like I've done that a lot in my life, but that was one of those moments. Okay. Well thanks for retracting that. Yeah, it is retracted. I Stricken from it. the record. Raleigh moved to New York City because he was really passionate about human trafficking. I was like for you to explain how we met. In my book, I talk about how I would have never moved to New York or really engaged human trafficking in the way that I am had it not been for Jessica Minhas. And um, yeah, that story is actually on page 45 of his book. <laughs> and I want you to know that it's very earmarked. I'm looking at her copy of the book and it is so earmarked. I am so honored that she actually read it. So when I launched the book, I remember telling everyone there at the book launch, I said, you know what, everyone, I'm just going to tell you a little behind the scenes information about this book. Part of the reason I came here, as you'll read, is because my friend Jessica said, you know, who cares if that big anti-trafficking organization won't hire you? They have massive turnover anyway. You need to start your own things. And I'm like, really? And she goes, yeah. Yeah. Don't be dumb. Just do it. Did I say don't be dumb? I don't know. What did you say? Because it's in the actual book here. Yeah, I'm just looking and I did come across you quoting me and yeah. I feel like you should have said that you paraphrased paraphrase this. I think that's an exact quote. Because you said Jessica paused. This is page 46 for all, all of y'all. Jessica paused for a moment. It was one of those pregnant pauses that builds anticipation for what is about to happen. That's stupid. That was brilliant. It just means that you aren't supposed to work for them. You just need to move to New York and figure it out. That's what you said. I said that's stupid? Yeah. Damn. I'm direct. You can be very direct. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. So, so you were working in West Virginia, mm-hmm. all places. Yeah. Shout out to West Virginia. Yeah. And as a college pastor. Mm-hmm. And you had gotten really inspired by the Passion Conference, which is a massive conference yeah. for Christians by Louis uh, Lou Louis Giglio. Giglio. There was yeah. over forty six thousand people when I was there. Forty six thousand people, and that's the first time you actually heard about human trafficking. Mm-hmm. What did you hear that was so? I think for me, what I heard impactful for you. I heard that not only is human trafficking happening, but we're also part of the problem. And so Christine Kane, who's written multiple books on human trafficking, she's also 
leading an organization called A21 that's really, I believe, doing good work around the world. But someone asked her, they said, so if someone has seen pornography, does that actually play into the problem of sex trafficking? And she said, absolutely. And I was stricken. I was broken. I was just crushed because this had been something that I had seen. This had been something like I just didn't know. And so it wasn't something I was looking at all the time by any means. I mean, but I was just shaken. And I think I'd just seen it. It was one of those things. Like I just, I, and I was just shaken and I'm like, God, I am sorry. I didn't know. And like, I just repented in that moment. Like, and what does that mean? We, that's we, a great word. That's a great thing to, to ask about. It means re- really to turn directions to say, you know what? I'm going to own this. This is not right. This is not the way it should be. I should have not done this. And right after I just prayed this sincere prayer to God, like, I just sensed that I was supposed to do something. And I thought maybe I ate bad pizza. Maybe this was a, maybe this was just something weird. And I couldn't shake it. Like I tried to not do anything to fight human trafficking for a year. And then people like you would call and be like, oh, you're going to fight trafficking and you're going to do this and you're going to do that. And I'm like, no, no. Like I'm thinking to myself, no, I'm not going to do that. And it finally came to a head. And then I would end up selling everything I owned and move to New York to f- figure out what this meant. And one of the reasons I reached out to you while I was wrestling with this was ironically, I believe it was in 2006 or 2007, we we both wound up on a double date. Oh, wow. Yeah. So Raleigh and I ironically went to the same university. We went to the University of Central Florida at the same time in the same major, interpersonal communications. Never but, met. Yeah, we never met. I was actually going to um, – the same ministry, InterVarsity Christian Ministry, while I was in college as well. And still, our paths did not cross until, ironically, I was dating a guy, a great guy. Fantastic guy. Really lovely guy. And Fantastic human, yeah. And you were dating his best friend. Yeah, who's also an incredible human. Yeah. Um, these are amazing people. And yeah. just, there's so much irony surrounding this story. But they have been friends since childhood, and they have such an amazing connection. They laugh, like, their jokes. They just have this, like, inner world together that is kind of, like, admirable as a couple – like, couple goals. Like Yeah, and I think for, for Jessica and I, like, we connected on the UCF stuff because we're in Louisville, Kentucky at this point. We're eating pizza at this place called Wicks Pizza on this double date. Because, you know, good double date goes to a pizza place. And True. It's the home of the 10-pound pizza. A lot of you may not know this. If you're ever in Louisville, Ten get the 10-pound pizza. You may have to run it off, but it's worth it. I have a lot of questions about that. So Raleigh and I are sitting at a table. He and I are across from the table with each other. And our our significant others, now exes, are <laughs> sitting across from the table from each other. And they are laughing so much over this one medical show. House? Probably. I think. And I just remember looking at Raleigh and thinking to myself, like, yeah, they should be together. Like, uh, th- th- this doesn't make sense. But Jessica did not tell me that. And I would later find out a little, a little later that it was probably a better fit with them than with her and I. And now they have two kids. Yes. They're both doctors. They're, yes. They're both I mean, do- they're, they're not I wish doing I was bad, their kid. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah. they're not, and they're great parents. And so, 
So it worked out. So when Raleigh called me to talk about human trafficking, you actually brought – you were a college pastor at the time. You brought a bunch of students up from West Virginia. I came in to talk about human trafficking. And after that, you said, like, I think I should do something. And yes. So I don't know if I said that's stupid, but I definitely was like, West Virginia is not going to be the place where you can learn the most and make the most impact. I feel like New York City just jump starts you whether you like it or not. It forces you to carve out who you are. That's absolutely true. And it forces you to either be the best version of yourself or the worst version, but you're going to become a different version of yourself. That's yeah, what I've you learned. Are. Yeah. So you, so you got here <laughs> much to my pushing a lot of other people too, because I read in your book that actually that moment in at the passion conference, you had all your life decided that you wanted to be a college pastor and mm-hmm. that you had worked to that. And that's the only thing you wanted to be. Right. Yeah. I thought that that was all, that was going to be my story. You were already in that job. So it was like the end all be all you were doing it. And then when I found out that they were getting rid of my position and then I found out one of my best friends from seminary was dying of cancer, like these two things happened at the same time. And I was also in a relationship, a a year long relationship that kind of came to an end, but it was one of those like, eh, we both were like, okay, you know, and she's married. She's super happy. I'm really excited for her. But all that said, all these things were happening at the same time. And I just came to a point where I'm like, this isn't cutting it. God, like, where, what direction am I supposed to go? I'm, I'm done. I'm the human trafficking thing came. I'm going to go figure it out. Even if I moved to New York and I fail miserably, I have to do something. So you sold all your stuff. Where did you like who, which, where, where did you live when you got here? I lived in a, a Christian missionary housing building. And it was fantastic. Very small room with a bunk bed. And so here I was, a man of like 33, 34 years old. And you're how tall? I'm six foot four (laughs) on a bunk bed in fetal position the majority of the evenings. And so it was one of those things that was like, this is my life. And did I make the right decision? Did I make the wrong decision? And then doors started opening for this human trafficking thing. And people started calling me and I started being asked to speak and all these things where I had zero credibility at the moment. I think that speaks so much to your bravery and your determination to just make it work. And again, I think that also is part of the type of people that when you think about New Yorkers, it's because of the, it's because of stuff like this. So Raleigh, you um, you moved here, and one thing you talk about in the book also is that like there are so many myths surrounding trafficking, and I love this one quote. And let me see if I can find it. Okay, when you talk about like moving to the city and wanting to be like a social justice advocate for human trafficking and feeling inadequate, you say on page fourteen, "How am I going to fight sex trafficking? I wear cardigans. I'm not going to kick down the door of a brothel." Yeah. It's a legitimate question. One of the components of stepping into the arena when it comes to human rights stuff is really understanding the issue. And in your book, you really outline a lot of the myths around trafficking. Can you talk a little bit about what the myths are and what it is actually? Well, I think a lot of the myths are well-intentioned, right? They can and do happen, but just not to the degree that most people think. Like I speak about the Super Bowl myth. I do believe that people can be trafficked at the Super Bowl. 
Yeah, and the, and the Super Bowl myth, just for from context for people listening, in recent years, there's been a lot of articles like this is the largest human trafficking event of the year. But Raleigh, you're actually saying that that's not necessarily the case. Right. Like I think when we think human trafficking only happens at the Super Bowl, and I know that sounds far-fetched that people would believe that, but, you know, I get these questions a lot. Well, we don't have human trafficking because we don't have major sporting events. Well, it can and does happen there, but it also happens anywhere where there are vulnerable people because at the end of the day, human trafficking is the exploitation of vulnerability for commercial gain, whether that's for sex, forced labor, domestic servitude in developing nations, if it's for organ trafficking. Traffickers are always target people whose backs are against the wall. And so, yeah, here I tell people, yeah, you may not have a large sporting event near you, but are there vulnerable people? Are there homeless people in your community? Are there people who are impacted by incarceration, whether they're the children of inmates or they're those who are on parole and they can't get a job? Are there new immigrants in your community? Whether they're documented or undocumented, traffickers typically don't care. And so we have to think through this lens of vulnerability. Another myth that I get, and I'd be interested in hearing some of the myths that you hear, but another one I hear is, well, we don't have human trafficking because we're not near a highway. So Raleigh, we're not going to partner with your organization. The word human trafficking doesn't mean that there has to be movement. Oh, that's interesting. I know that there's a lot of conversation around trafficking across state lines, but I think when you're talking about like these major sporting events, the highway, we think of like all these people are are um, around these places and movement, but actually like human trafficking is so more nuanced and so more complex. And I think that's what is so hard about, I mean, gosh, so hard about like criminalization, so hard about prosecution. It's so hard about services because when we, like, when I used to work in the space in the human, anti human trafficking space, I would often get asked, well, like, we, the statistics are so low and the statistics are all over the place. It's like, well, this is a black market crime that involves people. And it's just, it's so nuanced. One of the things that you say in your book that you get asked a lot on this topic of myths is, People will say to you, and this is crazy to me, people will say to you, well, why don't they just leave? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Why don't they just leave? And it's funny when we think about that, too, because almost everyone that asks that question has been in some form of an unhealthy relationship at some point in their life. And they have had a friend say, why didn't you just leave him? Why didn't you just leave her? The signs were there, but you stayed. And it's interesting because when anyone asks that question, they have no earthly understanding of what trauma can do to a person. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. I I find that statement so difficult because trauma in my own life and in the lives of people that I've worked with over the years, trauma undoes your sense of self and it undoes your ability to trust yourself. And over time, you put your own needs to the side because you need to be able to survive that situation. It's not over time. It's not even conscious anymore. I'm working through therapy right now about just like learning how to speak up. And remember to like eat because I've just learned over time to like put my basic 
needs aside as a kid, you know, in, in this trauma situation. So yeah, I, I get really frustrated too when I hear people say, well, this person is like re-victimizing themselves. And I think that's also a narrative in the human trafficking space because we have when we offer support to victims of human trafficking, it's just the cycle is just really hard, you know, and there's so many reasons that someone stays. I mean, whether you're in a domestic violence situation or in the case of human trafficking, and on that point, it overlaps a lot. Absolutely. And it's very easy to say something from the outside when you're not in the situation or you're not really intimately aware of the situation. You can be like, oh, gosh, that's stupid. Why would that person even do that? But that's just not that's not realistic because at the end of the day, we're all one medical emergency away from being in a place where we can be easily exploited. Yeah, for sure. For sure. For sure. I just think about when I was a kid and I I was in an abusive household, but I had the opportunity to get education. And I think that really changed the narrative for me because there were definitely instances where I'm like, I'm in a dangerous situation. And looking back, I'm like, you know, all of us are so lucky. We, when we think about victims, we often think of it us versus them. But to your point, yeah, like we're all vulnerable. One of the stories that you mentioned in your book is about now a friend of yours who was in college when this happened. Yeah. Yeah. A friend of mine who, you know, kind of disproves the, the myth that all human trafficking is abduction. Yeah, like Liam Neeson right. mentioned that in the book as well. I think I mentioned him like three to five times. Yeah. I think I mentioned a movie taken like three to five times because I want people to realize that Hollywood doesn't get the final vote on what human trafficking actually is. And so my friend was not abducted. She was groomed. Yes. She was groomed by someone who claimed to be a boyfriend. Talk to me about that concept of grooming. Yeah, it's interesting. If you think about the majority of people who are trafficked, they're not trafficked by a stranger. They're trafficked by someone who knows them, maybe a family member, maybe a quote-unquote love interest. But someone who is grooming someone is going to come in, and they're not just going to snatch someone. They are going to give that person whatever that person needs. They are master manipulators. And so they can find, like sharks in the water, right? When sharks sense blood... That blood is actually representative of vulnerability because there's someone who's cut or there's something that's bleeding and struggling. So they're going to go immediately for that. Traffickers work the same way. So they find this vulnerability and they're like, what do I need to do to get this person to come to me willingly? Yeah. A lot lot less energy is spent when you just give that person what they want, whether it's housing, whether it's affection, whether it's – I think affection is like one that we really forget about or just that secure attachment when we talk about attachment theory. But like, yeah, basic security. Um, You can have a secure attachment that's unsafe, even though it'll be secure. Well, and I've talked to many who've been trafficked who will say, yes, this was horrible. And what this person did was absolutely terrible. But there were moments, right? Like I wasn't chained, but like. My chains were emotional. They were psychological. The person strips you. I think you mentioned this, strips you of yourself. And that's what happens in a grooming process and gets you to depend entirely on them for everything in the sense that they kind of become a god to you. 
Yeah, I mean, you, you we have talked in the space, and I'm sure for those listening, you've heard the term Stockholm Syndrome, which is based off of a bank heist, which mm-hmm. I didn't know. You mentioned that in your book. I think that term is really – it's used a lot, but the context is even larger than that. You know, I was in unhealthy relationships – and why couldn't I just leave? I don't know. Like <laughs> I knew it was yeah, bad, but and then it can escalate as as high as as high as these awful topics we're talking about, domestic violence, or even in the case of trafficking. I thought this was so fascinating. I actually didn't know this, even though I've worked in the space for so long. I am flipping through the book to try and find the spot, but you mentioned some t- statistics about traffickers, and in one of the spots, you highlight a study that was all girls trafficking other girls we think that traffickers are like Liam Neeson but we also think of like the demand side and John's as being like also these like super sketchy guys that are like homeless guys or like in dark alleys and stuff but they're not actually no oftentimes sex buyers are like very respectable people in your community they don't look like what you have in your mind. And so when when you have these preconceived notions or these these labels that you want to put on people because that makes your world make more sense, what you're doing is you're actually blinding yourself with your own label. You're not able to see you're not able to see as things are. And yeah, I remember living in Louisville, Kentucky, right around the time that I met you, Jessica. And I I was driving home and I lived in an area that was right under the flight path as the planes were getting close to landing at the airport. That's where I lived. And I lived there because I could afford to live there. It was fantastic. It was a great place. But I remember driving back and there were a couple of streets where there was a lot of drug dealing. There was a lot of prostitution. And one day I was going down one of those streets because that's I, I lived right right down the road from there. And I see this guy in a Lincoln Navigator, and it's about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. He's got a tie on, well-dressed, Caucasian gentleman, and he's pushing this girl out of his truck. And it was very clear what had happened. This wasn't his girlfriend. This wasn't anything. Like, I just kind of hit it. I drove around at the at the right time, and, I, and it kind of broke me because I realized this guy's probably going home to his family. And telling his wife that he was working all day. And at that moment, I realized, wow, just like anyone could be a trafficker, anyone can be a sex buyer as well. And when we have these preconceived notions, it's dangerous. Because we're only going to see what what we allow ourselves to see. So we're kind of limiting ourselves and even the ability to like support or intervene. Yeah, absolutely. In your talks, and as you've kind of navigated this space as well, what have you seen in that area? In terms of what we witness and what we our assumptions are? Yeah. I remember I I actually had a really similar situation to you. Raleigh, you talk about this moment when you first moved to the city, you were on a subway platform and oh, you yeah. saw a girl. This is actually in the forward of, your, of Raleigh's book, but you saw a girl getting on the train. It was like winter or something. And she had something she dropped that looked like a passport and some other guy like dragged her onto the train. I actually had a few situations 
similarly, one that really stands out to me that was like really jarring was that I was sitting on the train. It was also winter. There was this girl who was wearing like sandals. I mean, it was freezing outside. And a girl, she was wearing sandals and an oversized brown sweatshirt. And she walked on the train. It was super crowded. And she was kind of standing next to me. And I was sort of like, oh, no, because I'm seeing all the signs. And some of the signs that if you're listening, you're like, what are the signs? Some of the signs that you can kind of see are like, it doesn't make sense what they're wearing, <laughs> like clothing wise. In this case, it was like cold, like I said, and she's not wearing much clothing. And she just looked like frazzled. And I just was like trying to think through my mind, like, I don't want to make an assumption and say something that could actually put her more in danger or, and this woman, this older woman sitting down in front of me, she was like, she looked up at her and then she looked at me and she was like, this woman's going to help you to me. Wow. And I was like, uh, okay. And I looked at her and I noticed that her hands were bleeding and I was like, okay, whose sweatshirt are you wearing? She was like, this guy. I'm like, okay, why are your your hands cut? And she's like, I jumped over a fence and I'm like, okay, do you have any, money? Do you have any, like, do you have anything? She's like, I just have my cell phone with me. And I was like, okay. In my head, I'm like, who are you running from? And so then after that, I gave her my cell phone number. And then I called her with like some resources. I I called all my friends here in the city for like homeless shelter resources. And that's really complicated because there's a time that someone has to get to the shelter by in order to be admitted to. And then a few days later, she actually called me because I was wondering what happened to her. And she called me and she said, thank you so much for reaching out to help me. No one's ever done that for me before. And then she started crying and I never heard from her again, but it was definitely one of those situations where she checked all the boxes. And I always wish I'm like, shoot, I wish I could have done something more. It was only until later that I realized that if you see anything where you're kind of not, not sure what's going on, you really have to check your biases. Raleigh, you talk a lot about that, your assumptions in the book. And then there are a few things that you can do. Can you speak a little bit about about those things? You had a really interesting call with a friend of yours when you saw something like this happen. Yeah, yeah. I actually called a friend of mine who worked with the FBI at the time. And I said, um, hey, this just happened. And basically, you just need to teach me how to fight. And he's like, well, we got a guy. We know a guy and we can do that. But was that the best thing you could have done in the moment? And I said, well, no, but I, I felt like I felt paralyzed. Like I, I failed. I'm the guy who's supposed to know how to fight human trafficking. I'm the guy who's supposed to empower other people. And I failed when the chips were down. And he was like, yeah, but let's talk about like what we would do. I said, okay. He's like, say I'm off duty. I see something. I look at my wife and the kids and I say, you guys head home. I'm going to jump on a train. I'm going to follow at a safe distance. I'm not going to try to be a hero, but I'm going to find out where they go. Do they go to a store? Do they go to a restaurant? Do they go to an apartment? And then I'm going to call police and I'm going to ask for a welfare check. Hey, I saw these things. This person was vulnerable in this way. And here are some signs of exploitation. So for human trafficking to actually um, be considered human trafficking for someone over the age of 18, there is needed force, fraud, or coercion to be proved. So are there signs of force? Are there signs of fraud? Has this person been tricked into a relationship? Are they being coerced? It's very important we notice that. But at the end of the day, I think a friend once told me this, and it's it's almost an oversimplification, but if there's ever a time where you see someone and you don't know them and there's no relationship, 
but you don't like the way they're being treated or you don't like the way they're being handled or something just seems off and you're having the uh-oh feeling. This this isn't okay. This is not fine. This is not normal. You can actually call your local police and ask for a welfare check and they will check. And and it was liberating because it's something you can do. But then if you see something and it's like a perpetual thing, you can also call the human trafficking hotline, which is 1-888-3737-888. Or you can text BEFREE, so B-E-F-R-E-E, and just tell them what you've been seeing. And so these are two very tangible things you can do in that moment. Can you talk a little bit about what it means to be hidden in plain sight? Yeah. Like it comes back to the assumptions, right? Like we assume oftentimes that a lot of vulnerable people are actually perpetrators. So we'll allow our political lens to kind of cloud maybe our personal or interpersonal lens. Sometimes we'll see our neighbors who may not be documented citizens, but they are our neighbors. They're in our community. And we'll see them and we'll say, wow, that person's here to steal jobs. Or And and I know a lot of very good people who may believe this, and this is in no way like slamming them by any means. I understand it. There is illegality here. But even though this person is here illegally, they shouldn't be exploited or trafficked either. And so how can we do both, right? Like how can we kind of address the legal concerns but also address this person? And the same goes with people who are in prostitution. Some people were like, well, they chose that. They they are here to prey on our men. I've, I've heard people say this, you know. But I think ultimately we don't we don't know that person's full story. We don't know if they were yeah. tricked into this. We don't know if they were sexually abused as a child. We we or don't survival know. sex. You know, yeah. I heard somebody recently in the community sex workers alliance. They were talking about this kind of conflict that's arising right now between this anti sex trafficking community and the sex workers union. They're arguing right now over rights and like healthcare and benefits, and it's just a really really murky situation. But I heard somebody say, and I thought this was so wise. They said, if you're upset about us doing sex work, then provide us with safe housing at the moments that we needed it. Because for this individual in particular, part of the reason that they that sex work became a part of their story is because of survival sex and needing just straight up housing and food and a way to get by. When you look at this, right, like it's very easy to say this person, whoever they are, whatever they're doing, they're a villain, but – what would have happened if we saw someone as they were vulnerable and said, we're going to do life with that person. We're going to bring them into our family or our network. We're going to care for that person. We're going to get to know them. It's not going to be a one-off, let me take you to McDonald's and buy you a meal. It's like, I want to hear your story. I want to walk with you. I want to be friends. I want to – like doing life with other people because at the end of the day, we're vulnerable as well. We may be vulnerable in different ways, but we're not coming at this as someone who's coming to – fix someone else's problems. We're not coming at this to see people as projects, but to see them as people. And when we realize we're people too, and we have our own issues, we're able to be on level ground. And I think that's what people need. And so 
Yeah, it's it's very easy to get lost in our assumptions. And in, as we're assuming things about others, we're assuming wrongly about ourselves. Oh, tell me more about that. Yeah, we're assuming that we have it together. We're We're not taking into account all the countless hours that other people have invested in us that have helped us arrive at a different place. I had one person working with me, and they had had a conversation with a young man who is currently homeless. And the guy was broken because he was like, this guy is my age. And a couple of things broke my way that didn't break his. Yeah. And I had I had a network of people who looked after me. He didn't. Right. And so there's no difference between us. And I think that's so important to realize because when we assume that we have it together, then ultimately we're operating from a position of hubris. That's what we're doing. You say in your book that vulnerability perpetuates vulnerability and this sensitivity to to being perpetrated against. But you also say in your book that vulnerability is also our greatest strength. And I know that's like a moniker that we hear all the time, like vulnerability, your feelings make you strong and stuff. But <laughs> I want to hear you unpack it because I think your perspective on it is so, so unique. I think for me, and I think I've told you this, writing a book on vulnerability was hard, especially when you are living out its message. It would be really easy if I just wrote a book and – just called it a day. But the day after my book came out, my house burned down and I was <laughs> functionally homeless for three months and having to depend on Let's friends. Let's pause and yeah. slow that down for a second. And just as a very, very brief side note, Raleigh, when he moved here seven years ago, he broke your foot. Yeah. I had been two, hospitalized two broken feet inside of one year. And so I was in a cast for an entire year. Yep. <laughs> Fast forward, you release your book on vulnerability, and the very next day your house burns down? Yeah. Yeah, that happened. And it was one of those things where I didn't even know how to process that. and But I didn't go to – I didn't catastrophize it, I think, because – Which is hard not to. How could you not? I had people who had my back. I had people who cared for me. Someone gave me a sublet and said, just pay us what you can. You know, for three months. And then I was able to get another apartment. But, you know, it's funny. I was blessed in that. And I was ridiculously, like, lucky to have that opportunity. But there's a lot of people who things like this happen to. And who do they turn to? And it was really sobering for me. Because I just realized that... Some really great things have broken in my way, even when horrible things happen. And so we have to realize that the people that we're seeing on a daily basis or choosing not to see that are suffering in these ways, like we we need to, you know, to yeah, we need to walk alongside of them. We need to actually invest in these people because, yeah, like. I'm not saying that we are the answer to their issues, but I am saying that relationships matter. Yeah, that's such a good point. I always think when people ask me about what's the best way to get involved with 
anti-human trafficking efforts. And like I said, Raleigh has literally wrote, written a book on this. So please check it out. But the thing that always came to mind for me in particular was please mentor young people in your life and build relationships with people who don't have that support network. Yeah, absolutely. Because what happens is when people don't have that support network, they can actually either end up as perpetrators or as those who are perpetrated upon. And I think that's just the nature of wanting to get some attachment. It's almost like a misdiagnosis of sorts. It's a way to cope, but because without that support. I want to um, pivot a little bit. You mentioned a lot about vulnerability and purpose and how vulnerability like leads to your purpose. And, you know, bringing this back to the beginning of this conversation, that moment in the grandstands at that passion conference, you know, you were kind of like affected by this moment of vulnerability, but that's really been a theme for you for better or for worse, whether you liked it or not. (laughs) This is where you've kind of been led. Can you talk a little bit about how vulnerability does lead to purpose? Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting, right? Like one of the things that we often talk about when it comes to finding purpose is strength finders. Strength finders, we think, are so important because we want to operate out of our strengths because who really wants to look at their weakness in the face? Who really wants to deal with their limitations? But if you really think about it, there is freedom in your limitations because your limitations actually, they govern you. They force you to depend on God or depend on others or to really just... Take a step back and realize that there's no way that you can solve the world's problems on your own, that you're, you can't be alone, that you need community. I love that because as I think about it, one thing I say in the book is that our vulnerabilities are kind of like bumpers that you would set up at a bowling alley. You walk into a bowling alley and you want to hit a strike. But if you're anything like me, I gutter ball that thing over and over and over and over. I am not a great bowler. I'm kind of proud of that. Really? Yeah. I'm kind of proud because that was a life decision I made to not be a good bowler. Okay. And I respect the guys that are, but like, you know what? I'm just not. I'm not a great bowler. It's not important. It's not my thing. And But when I bowl with bumpers, I'm fantastic because – It'll bounce on one side, then bounce on the other, and bounce again. And you know what? It'll definitely knock down a lot of pins because there's no way for it not to. And our vulnerabilities, in a sense, are our bumpers. You know, when we bump into a weakness or a fear or something that has limited us, that's actually guarding us in certain ways. And it's actually shaping us, too. If we look back over the vulnerabilities that we've experienced, if we look back over those, what we will find is that we have grown in significant ways as we've responded to them. You don't become who you are in a vacuum, just like you would have never ended up doing what you're doing with All Go First or me with Let My People Go. We would have never done this had we not been processing our own trauma and our own weakness throughout our life. I'm not saying that the things that have happened to us in in our, our past we're, we're perfect and we're always great. And some of them things I wish had never happened. But I do, according to my Christian worldview, I would argue that God brings beauty out of ashes. 
And so though I don't understand why certain things have happened in my life, I'm here because of it. And I'm able to operate as a much wiser person. But that's forced me, again, my vulnerabilities have forced me to depend on other people. I believe in counseling. Very much so. Big fan. Me too. <laughs> yeah. And you know what? I It took me so long to actually say that publicly. Really? Why? I think because I was afraid people of what people would think. But, you know, I'm at a place now where I'm like, I think everyone needs it. I Yeah, I think it can be really helpful. Yeah, and if you're not going to counseling, like, you're just – you're setting yourself up for failure. Or if you're not having people who you can actually share anything with, very yeah. safe people, if you don't have those – you are setting yourself up for failure. And that's why we need community. You were never meant to do this alone, ever. Talk to me a little bit about what good community looks like. How do you know when you've found it? Yeah, so good community, it's one of those things that's easy to talk about but hard to find. And finding people who are safe people, I think that's very key. So finding people that you can tell anything to. But, you know, you don't really... You shouldn't feel like you have to tell them everything, but it's just people that you're like, I, this person is a trusted friend and they, they are there and there's nothing I can say that'll get them to go away. Like it's those friends who, when you make a huge mistake, they don't call you to gloat. They don't call you to scream at you. They call you and they're like, Hey, I love you, but you just did something really dumb and I'm for you and I'm not going anywhere, but let's process this. How can we get there? How can we move through this? Or the people when you are just deeply hurt and everyone turns away because it's not sexy to be around you right now because mm. you're processing things and you're kind of killing people's buzz. It's those people who say, hey, let's get dinner. Yeah. You know, let's let's sit down. Whatever you need to say. I'm here. Like those relationships for me were the most important and I still have people, even from like college and before, who I can call at any point, who I haven't talked to in years. I can call and say, hey, can you give me about 30 minutes of your time? And yeah, finding community. And it may not just be locally, but, you know, through the interwebs, your community can can be a lot different than one would think, but just finding people that you can talk to and that can talk to you and people that you can invest in and people that would invest in you and just finding people that would fill that void. Because I think a lot of us, we enter into bad relationships because we need to be accepted. Well, what would happen if you had a good community that would accept you? Mm, yeah, so true. And you get that need met and then you're free to actually embark on relationships when you're healthy. You, you know, the nature of Alger first is really having the courage to go first. And Raleigh, you and I have talked about the irony in our fields. You wrote a book on vulnerability. Organizationally, Alger first really is about empowering you to be vulnerable, to own your story, seek healing in whatever form that looks like and embrace your purpose. And it's really hard for me to do that. And I yeah. have a company that does yeah, that same. and wants to support other people doing that. What are some practical tools for vulnerability? Ooh, practical tools for vulnerability. Well, I think, honestly, as we... Well, what is vulnerability? Yeah, so it's this idea of having an unmet need. So there's 
really two ways to interpret it because I think the popular interpretation of vulnerability is transparency, being transparent about your feelings. Yeah, that's part of it. But it's this experience of unmet need, this limitation, this exposure, this not being covered, feeling naked in a sense, whether it's emotionally, physically, what have you, you can be vulnerable in multiple ways. But yeah, it's really, here's the thing. Everyone is vulnerable. But it's how are we communicating that? And I think for a lot of us, if you're, especially with I'll Go First, and you're talking about wanting people to really address their own vulnerability and talk about it, well, you almost have to say it's okay. Because I think for me, I covered up my vulnerability for so many years because I wanted people to respect me. I wanted people to see me as someone who had it all together. And then when I realized I didn't have it all together, and I'm just a, a guy just trying trying to make it through the day like everyone else, that was actually freeing. And it just kind of freed me to say, yeah, I don't have it together. And what I found is when I say something where I'm really putting my weakness out there, People respond really, really, really well because they're afraid to say it and there's someone speaking their language. It is so hard for us to do that, but I think that's one way that we can lead. When we lead out of vulnerability, sure, it's going to be messy, but we're basically saying my level of exposure may differ from yours, but I have it and you're a human and you have dignity just like me. And so how can we just be messy together? Raleigh, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. (laughs) Don't hurt me. (laughs) No more. That is a very difficult question. But, you know, in my, in my, my, my worldview, I would argue, you know, God is love. Like, and the sacrifice we see of Jesus who came and he lived in a perfect life in our place and he died to make broken people whole, to make broken people right with him. That is the best picture of love that I have. It's this idea of selflessly loving someone else without condition. That is so important. And I'll tell you the majority of love that I have given or experienced growing up, it was tainted, which is another song, Tainted Love. (laughs) I think at the end of the day, having someone love you in a way that has nothing to do with you in that moment or your behavior or anything, that inspires you to love. And I believe God has done that, but I also believe that other people are capable of doing that. And when they do that, you want to love others. And I've had amazing, amazing people in my life who've loved me in a way that I didn't deserve. And that made me want to love others. And then I was able to see past the trite things that I would use as, you know, reasons to not care for them and able to actually love them for who they were in spite of things that they may have done or said. Because when you love vulnerable people, it's not going to be this pretty thing. That's true. Trauma is messy. It is, yeah. It's hard to be loved as well if you have trauma. That I always say that love and hope are audacious. They're rude sometimes because it takes a lot of strength 
to believe in that, a lot of courage to believe that it could be different. What are some ways that we can get involved with your work? So you can go to our website, which is lmpgnetwork.org. You can also look up the book. It is thevulnerablebook.com. The book is entitled Vulnerable Rethinking Human Trafficking, and you can find it on Amazon. But these are ways that you can kind of tap into what we're doing with Vulnerable and ways that you can kind of learn more about what Let My People Go is doing with faith communities and helping them fight human trafficking at the point of vulnerability because we want to fight for freedom. That's what we want to do. And so as ending human trafficking, I think faith communities are in such a good place to actually love vulnerable people. And so that's our goal. And so, yeah, if you could check those out, that'd be incredible. Thank you, Raleigh, for sharing your wisdom and being vulnerable with us. I so appreciate you and you are such a dear friend. Yeah. So thank you. You teach me a lot. No, likewise. Thank you so much. I'm Jessica Minhas, and thanks for joining us on I'll Go First. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Our mission is to uplift and support you in your journey of healing. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, comment, and share. And if there's a topic you'd like us to dive deeper into or would like to share your story with us, we are available on all major platforms at I'll Go First and www.algofirst.com. We'll see you next time.